Hello everybody and welcome back to the My Love of Golf podcast. It's Roscoe here and right now we have part two of our wonderful interview with Mel Hughes. Thanks for the feedback on part one. It is an unbelievable story. The second part of the interview, Mel tells us a little bit more about his golf travels, a little bit more about his golf photography and we just finish off what has been a wonderful golf story from a wonderful gentleman who has in all honesty, blow me away with the level of experience that he's had, not only in golf, but in life in general. So thanks for listening in. Tune into the rest of uh, Mel's story, part two, and uh, thanks for tuning in once again. Look forward to hearing you next time on the My Love of Golf podcast. Jump over, leave us a review, leave me a like, leave me a share, a follow, whatever it is. I really do appreciate everyone who's shared Mel's story, but also the My Love of Golf podcast. Thanks once again. I find myself. I've only ever been to one one major, and that was the Open at Troon in two thousand and sixteen. And if I reflect on my time there, I I reckon I spent as much time, maybe not quite, but I spent a lot of time sitting on the, the beautiful stand that they erect behind the range, just watching everyone hit balls. And uh, so I can really, I really feel uh, that connection there, just watching the ball flights and watching them hit, and, and listening for the sound that you you know articulated so beautifully when you you know, were watching. Um, uh, on the range there, so yeah, unbelievable. So well, my own, my own game, you know, I've played in a number of USGA championships, but the the strength of my game was always tee to green, and mm. so ball striking was something that I identified with, and so I marvelled at these people's ability to hit balls consistently and repetitively, and. While on the course, they didn't replicate that because of nerves or side hill lies or, you know, grass, you know, the grass is too heavy or wet, you know, or thin. I mean, you know, or you just made a bad shot, but man on the range, their ability. And so it gave me a standard by which I realized, you know, that I had skill, but nothing like what some of these players. So, yeah, much like your experience, I, I enjoyed watching the course, but you had to fight through all the people and, uh, uh, but but on the range, I could get behind them and I could see the trajectory much better. And, you know, if you, and back then there weren't that many people and you could actually get close enough. You could hear them if they hit it thin or hit it fat, you know, or flushed it and everything. It was, uh, but, uh, but again, you know, I, maybe I don't have the memories of the masters because, uh, one, I had a job to do there. So it wasn't like I was just hanging out Yeah, and, um, and I was a you know young college kid who was quite frankly distracted. But I can't overemphasize what an impact Georgia Tech had on me—an ability to, you know, it really helped me in my career to set goals and realize that some things are very difficult. And uh, and the work I do now with different companies and their competitive pursuits, trying to convince them that what the customer wants may not be something they're very good at, and yet they've got to go fill that gap. I mean, it's not just figuring out that, you know, this company, company A is uh, good at these things and then trying to convince the customer that's what they need. The really successful companies are ones who 
start outside in. They look at what the customer wants and then figures out what they're good at. And then they try to fill those gaps. And so, you know, Georgia Tech certainly identified in me that if I was going to get ahead, I had to really, really work at it because there's some very smart people walking around the world. And, uh, Mel, I'm, I'm conscious of your time and, you know, I'm sure that we could talk about Mr. Jones and there's a whole lot of other stuff that we could talk about in that part of your uh, life. But I'm interested to talk about your you know, top 100 golf course experiences and you know some of your photography and you know just some of the places that you've been around the world and, and what the favorite destinations and what some of those golf courses that you really hold in high esteem that you've had the experience of playing you know in in your career when you know you've just said before that you've takes you all around the world and it's a great way to 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 see and, and experience golf of, of different uh, types around the world what are some of your favorite golfing experiences that you've had Well, I have played, of course, you know, we formed the Global Golf Centurions Club. And there are, that we know of, 50 people who have played the world's top 100. Uh, three have declined to join the club. Seven uh, are deceased. So there's uh, 40 members. Um, I didn't, like I said, I, it was probably 97 before I realized that how far along the list I was. I started going to England and Scotland in 1992 and, and went every year and not just for a week or 10 days. I, the first trip I took in 92 was with a group of friends and, and a club I belonged to in Denver. And, and they went over for 10 or 12 days, but I was so motivated to go. I went over two weeks in advance of that. So generally every year I tried to find three or four weeks to go over and play a lot of, you know courses and i was alone and uh and i used scads travel in minneapolis shameless plug you know will scadsburg plans all the trips for me and you know and i drive myself and um so it's like an adventure you know it's not a i'm not in a coach with a driver and that sort of thing and there there are a lot of really good services that do that but i have just preferred uh, kind of going on my own and of the list of golf magazine that started in 1979 through 2019 what's that 21 lists every other year i have played 12 of those lists i played every course from 1991 through 2013 i have not finished the list 2015 17 or 19 and the thing that has kept me from it is quite frankly in your backyard is ellerston and uh, I actually had uh, Darius Oliver as a friend, and he had arranged through Bob Harrison for me to play, but there was some conflict with some polo events. And, and so the Packer family had shut off the golf course, and so the tee time fell through at the last moment. And so really that – and the, there's a course in China, and I actually got one year a, a visa to go to China thinking I would do that. And – let's just say the authorities visited me because of my past clearances wanting to know why I was going to the people's Republic of China. Right. And, uh, and they can't stop me and everything, but they can certainly ask why I'm going, you know, and there was some, and they were incredulous. Let me say that I was really thinking about going to China to play golf. They, they, they could not square that circle. 
and uh, I explained, well, Shanquin Bay is in the world's top hundred. I need to go play it. And now I'm not inclined to do it because it's only a 17 hole golf course and, um, that in Ellerston. So if, if I've been very busy at work, but if I had, if I had the time, I would love to get back over and play Ellerston. And there's a course up in Thailand and Shanquin Bay and that part of the world. And now we have Terra Edi and Cathedral and I have a friend that's a member of those. And so that would be a pretty easy ask, but Ellerston has been the wild card. That's really probably kept me from finishing the 15, 17 and 19 list. The others are gettable. Can I, can I tell you a little, it's, it's an insignificant story, but just a little connection of myself to Ellerston. So where I grew up in the Hunter Valley, it's a little town called Cessnock, which is the, the gateway to the Hunter Valley, Hunter Valley vineyards. Um, if you like your wine, you know, you might know some of the wine from that area. And my dad worked in that industry for 46 years when he immigrated to that area from Scotland. But uh, I was a golfer. My brother was a golfer, you know, reasonably good golfers, but never going to be professionals or anything. But my brother went down the greenkeeping route. So he, he became a greenkeeper. And we lived in a very small street, maybe 50 houses, maybe more, I'm not sure. But uh, from that street, the two young gentlemen that came out of that street with two greenkeepers, my brother and another chap whose name escapes me at the moment because it was a while ago, who lived around the corner, down the, down the street. My brother worked with Bob Harrison building the vintage, which is in the, in the vineyards there. So he, Bob Harrison and he used to go out and play the holes that uh, Norman had designed at the vintage uh, course there and my brother was a long hitter so Bob would make him, you know, play to dog legs and play some of the shots that, you know, he was wanting people to see how that uh, strategy would play out. But the other young chap down the road who was a greenkeeper worked and built and worked on it at Elliston. So there you go. So there's my little connection from the street with Bob Harrison and Elliston. I never got to play there. I haven't been there myself. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Well, you know, people ask me what my favorite course is, and it's really hard to – you know, Pine Valley is clearly the number one rated course in the world. Uh I think if I had one course, one round of golf to play in the United States, it would probably be Shinnecock Hills. Uh, Oakmont is a great favorite. Wingfoot, Marion. You know, I like the old established courses. Uh, If you go to Great Britain and Ireland, um, there's so many great ones. But if I had to pick one, and and if the fact that I said I would play – Shinnecock Hills first. You want to take a guess what my first choice would be in Great Britain and Ireland? Well, I've only experienced a limited amount of golf in Scotland. Oh. I've never played in in the UK. I've played in Ireland a little bit, but I've never played down in. Um, okay. sorry, in Eng- I've never played in England. So if it's a course in England, I, I won't, won't have experienced it. John, maybe no. maybe that's a one a question for you. What's uh, the most similar course to Shinnecock in Great Britain and Ireland? The most similar. Um, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. No, I didn't good. mean to it's do good. that. It's good. <laughs> I can't think of anything that's uh, as open and as expansive as Shinnecock, but without without having dunes. Most to my to my eye, it's Muirfield. Right. Yeah. The the rolling the rolling waves, the wheat fields, almost with the grass. To me, it is is very very similar. And and I think one of the most strategic courses. I mean, you can look at the twelfth hole. And, you know, it looks so simple, you know, but it's so hard to get the ball in the fairway. And if you get the ball in the fairway, it is so hard to get the ball on the green. And, you know, it's just a very strategic golf course. But if I had one course to play in the UK, it would 
first one would probably be your field. And I have a friend that's a member there and, you know, we meet and, you know, the coat and tie and have coffee or tea and scones in the morning and play 18 and the famous lunch and, uh, and go out and play in the afternoon. And he only plays on days where there aren't, uh, the public guests, you know, and he's a retired Scottish army general and very proper. And in fact, I met him in Melbourne playing the metropolitan, his son was a liquor distributor there in, in Australia, but, uh, he has a cocker spaniel named musket. And so, <laughs> uh, so Francis and I would go out to play and musket would run around and chase birds and there'd be very, very few people playing. And, and so it was, uh, it's quite, it's, again, like I said, I'm not religious, but that's a very spiritual feeling. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. It's a beautiful golf course. I was lucky enough to experience it in September, just gone, and uh, yeah, I can absolutely concur from from my experience. It was uh, an amazing day, and a tr- totally amazing day. So, if you think about, you know, I mentioned Shinnecock, you know, National Golf Links, Oakmont, Marion, Wingfoot, um, and Pine Valley. Um, which is in Clementon, New Jersey, ring you know, very close to Marion. Um, and then you get over, I really like the, the new, the new Turnberry, I think is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not played Turnberry, but I, I certainly had, uh, had a wonderful dinner down there and we took a walk out to the, the, uh, lighthouse and back and just saw the changes to, I, excuse me, I don't remember the whole numbers, but the, the par three over the, over the water there and the crevasse, what, what, how they had lengthened that and changed it. It was just amazing to to see. And uh, just to walk a few holes was was exciting enough, mm-hmm. let alone to play it. So one day, one day I'll uh, get back there. But, you know, Royal Dornick, I think, is very special. Bally Bunyan is very special. Uh, Royal County Down may be the best golf course in the world. Uh, the new, uh, the two new holes make uh, Royal Portrush. It certainly did very well for itself in the Open last year. Um, I got rid of the old 17 and 18 and now there's a seven and eight. So it's, um, so those come to mind. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, Kingston Heath, you know, where John is a member and, uh, uh, Royal Melbourne. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I don't think they do it anymore. I checked for a number of years and they, and quit doing it but they used to have a composite tournament every year and they would let anybody sign up and it was like 350 dollars. and so since i my companies did a lot of work in australia it was easy for me to schedule i had to be there anyway and so there were several years where i flew to melbourne and uh, you pay 350 dollars and you have breakfast and you play the composite course and you come in and have a late lunch or an early dinner, if you will, and they hand out a few prizes and you go home. But uh, I actually did that a few times. So I'm a huge fan of Royal Melbourne and um, there's so many great golf courses there, you know, Victoria, Commonwealth, Metropolitan. I mean, it's just uh, the national, you know, Darius is, you know, was a member out there. Another friend, Paul Daly, if you know him and, uh, he writes golf architecture books himself, and uh, 
I'd love, I'd love to meet Darius. We actually live quite close to each other, and um, we're members of the same club ourselves. And you know, he did a lot of uh, work at my former club, which is a little little course called Mornington Golf Club. And he helped with the master plan there and, and redesign a very small little par three, which they've made into their signature hole right onto the cliff and overlooking the water. But uh, he, you know, he's one of the guys that I would uh, like to catch up with and have a chat uh, just about golf. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, what an amazing well, going. well, Mike, yeah, Mike DeVries is a friend of mine mm-hmm. and, you know, he, he designed, you know, Cape Wickham, yeah. Cape Wickham. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'd love to come back to Australia for, cause I haven't played Cape Wickham and, uh, I love New South Wales and Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and Victoria and Commonwealth. All these courses are just, it's, it's just such a treat to get to play them. And well, there's, um, an, there's another one that you need to put on the, uh, list of uh, possibles and that's my home course at peninsula kingswood which uh, uh mike cocking has done the redesign and the redevelopment of the 36 hole complex that we have down there so it's in in frankston i'm not sure if you played little frankston the, the little nine hole no. course but uh, no i have not but uh put peninsula kingswood on your list and and maybe we can get on to uh john you could take us down to little frankston maybe i'm sure you can uh organize that but uh that'd be played it myself. never played little frankston little frankston's phenomenal little frankston's phenomenal it's a mel it's a nine hole course uh it's colloquially known as the millionaires club but uh i don't think that really has any bearing on on it but that's what it's colloquially known as and um it's just a i believe the story in the history that it was created by the royal melbourne members to have access to a course when they were down at uh like places like mantelizer and Frankston and Mount Martha for their holidays, which is now just another suburb of Melbourne. But back in the day, it was you know a destination for for holidays by the by the bay, and uh, yes, yeah, just a little nine holer, and you know it's so unassuming. There's no pomp and circumstances, no big gates. You just drive in. You wouldn't know that it was there. Just a small you know cottage type clubhouse, and and away you go and play this lovely little nine hole design. So it's certainly uh, you know one of the one of the courses that's on a lot of people's list. So. Should, we should do that when you get back down. We, when you get down here, we should do that. That'd be great. I'd like to. But you asked about you know the courses. I mean, it's it, to me, it's just spiritual. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I tend to stay in the same hotels that I stay in, and I eat in the same restaurants, and you know, and I, I like that familiarity. Uh, um, and there are courses, you know, that uh, probably to us, uh, Cruden Bay and uh, uh, Nairn, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the the Trump International Scotland is a wonderful golf course. I made a photo book. I mean, the pictures are so stunning. I mean, it's just remarkable the the vistas you get when you play that golf course from a photographic point of view. You know, one of the best rounds of golf I ever played was at Carnoustie, and uh, so just so many. I mean, I could talk for hours yeah. about those experiences at different courses. Uh, you know, London Links and uh, Crail and. You know, it's just uh, well, there's two. There's two that I have played. I have I have had a great experience. Not Crail, the old links, the Balcomi links. I played the Craig Head links in a in a ten pound open tournament. Uh, I lost the ball in the first shot uh, into the gorse on the middle of the fairway on that par five, but uh, <laughs> it was a wonderful wonderful day. Uh, you know, it's a I think it's a Gil Hans. Is that a Gil Hans? That course. Anyway, no, it really. do, doesn't matter if it is or not. But uh, you know, hitting you know, a golf course where you're hitting over. Um, old century old stone walls that run through the middle of the fairway uh you, you know just blew me away at that time and you know i subsequently after that you know had the pleasure of experiencing north berwick and 
uh, the pit hole there and just, you know, obviously stone walls feature a lot on, on Scottish golf courses, which is a beautiful, a beautiful feature. You, photography, Mel, and once again, I said I'm conscious of your time, but photography has become a passion or it's always been a passion of yours. What is, you know, being able to create these wonderful photo books that I'm not sure if you publish them or they're just things that you make and, and keep for your own use. I, I, happy to happy to learn, but, you know, what does that mean for you? Uh, well, I have played like 950 different courses in my life and I have a scorecard from every one of them. Um, and just so you know, uh, Bob McCoy has played probably 15, 16, 1700. And there was a guy back in the 1920s that played over 3000 different document documented golf courses. So 950 is, uh, is small fry, but that's a lot of different golf courses when you stop and think about it. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at my advanced age, you know, that's been accumulated over a lot of time. So, I got into photography because I would buy the little $10 disposable film cameras and I would take two pictures on every hole. And then back then it wasn't digital, it was film. And so I would send them to the local grocery store, you know, no special processing and just get the pictures, which I still have by the way. And, uh, and that's so I could keep the hole straight. So if someone asked me about the 11th or 12th hole at Rye golf club, I could go open up my little folder of pictures and, and when I got them, I would, you know, still the course was familiar in my mind and I would write the whole numbers on the back of the image. Uh, and then, so when digital cameras came, uh, that was a godsend because now I could take the pictures and I could take as many as I wanted. And then I didn't have to pay anybody to process them and I could pick them, uh, you know, just keep them on my hard drive. And, uh, and I had taken a picture that it was a kind of a, mostly cloudy to partly cloudy day at Royal Troon. It was late in the afternoon and we were on the eighth hole, you know, the postage stamp and the light was coming through, you know, it was just one of those moments. And I snapped a picture with these sun rays coming through the sun, illuminating, you know, and the shadows on that hole were remarkable. And so, uh, and, and I'm not telling the story quite right. This was a, an early point and shoot digital camera. And so I took that image on a, a you know flash drive or whatever you know memory device I had at the time, and down to Mike's camera in Denver and asked them if they could make a you know a big image. And the guy said he'd do the best he could, and and he came back and said the largest image I can make is a five by seven, and that's up on my armoire, you know, upstairs in my house. And I said, well, it's a digital. You know, and then I got thinking I was working on some classified digital spacecraft things and I went, there aren't enough pixels. And he said, there aren't enough pixels. He said, if you really want to make these larger images and not have it, and this is before, you know, resize it and Photoshop and all of that was available with the capabilities that we have now, he said, you need to buy a real digital camera. And so once you start down that road, then you, you know, if you buy a camera that's got the sensor and the low light capability and enough pixels that you can be sloppy in framing the image and then crop the image down smaller and then expand it into the size that you want to print and still print at 300, you know, dots per inch on a, you know, a 22 by 17 page, you need millions of pixels, you know, millions. And so 
you know, I have a Nikon D850, which is uh, 46 megapixels, and it does very well in low light conditions. And then you get it, but once you get that, now you got to start buying the lenses that have the clarity, you know, to make all of that. So the lens doesn't become the limiting factor. And then you have to have a custom designed desktop computer that can image process. Because when I get through with one of these images, it's probably a gigabyte each. Wow. So it's, uh, so anyway, it becomes a very expensive hobby, but uh, during this uh, lockdown with coronavirus, I, you know, I'm spending several hours a day working, but then several hours a day in the evening with a glass of wine doing Photoshop seminars and webinars and learning. And, and so it's, uh, I try every day to turn on the computer, turn on Lightroom, turn on the external drives that have the 100,000 images that I've got, and I work on something photographic-wise. I'm not a, an artistic person at all, so whatever art skill I have is manifested in photography. But I make these books for myself because I don't ask for commercial licenses to, you know, technically, you know, if you – if I've made a photo book and tried to sell it, you know, and say of Wingfoot, well, I didn't ask Wingfoot's permission to sell pictures or images of their golf course. And so uh, you're supposed to get model releases and you're supposed to get club releases. If you do that, like Larry Lambrick, you know, who's very famous for those sort of things. And I just, I don't do that. So I make the books for me. And if I've got friends that arranged, you know, I did one, all the great, you know, Sand Hills and Oakmont and Wingfoot, I, you know, Pine Valley, I've done all those. Normally, I will send them then to the person that arranged the tea time. And a few clubs have asked for copies of Peachtree Golf Club, bought a bunch of images and framed them and sold them in the pro shop. There are a few hanging in the, in the clubhouse, which, by the way, was the, the Peachtree Golf Club clubhouse. That house was the house that General Sherman stayed in when he burned Atlanta during the Civil War. And, uh, so, and in one club used them, uh, the photo book as a prize, not a prize, but as a stocking stuffer, if you will, for one of their member guest tournaments. So that every player got one of the photo books, you know, but mostly it's just for me, yeah. you know, and I share them with friends and, uh, uh, something I love to do. And again, I can make beautiful pictures and I try to do it from a golfer's perspective, trying to show that you know, the beauty of the hole and the, you know, what the architect was trying to do in terms of the shot shapes and those sort of things and the, the, to put people there. Cause you know, a lot of the photographers now that do this, they go on their own. They spend days and days and days at the golf course. Well, I'm taking pictures while I play, right. Yeah, you know, so I'm taking pictures from where you hit a ball in the fairway. And so, you know, and if I have the right lenses and everything that I'm, you know, I'm trying to show an image such that you can see in the image, like, well, how in the hell do you hit the ball to that pin position on that green from where you are? And you go, that's the point, you know? And so, uh, and then the great golf courses like Muirfield, it's not because they've got, you know, 15 foot deep bunkers. It's just because of the, you know, I mentioned the 12th hole, you know, you look at the, the slope of the green from left to right. And, you know, if you hit it left, there's a, you know, there's a, a little mound that rejects the ball to the left of the green. And then if you're chipping back on your downhill and there's a series of traps on the right lower side and it is just, so the only way you can get it on the green is you've got to hit it over the traps and hook it. I mean, if you hit it fading, it's, it's not going to stop. It's going to wind up in those traps. And so 
without all of the lakes and all of that sort of stuff, you, you start to see the difficulty. So I try with the shadows, you know, to, in the post-processing to show that. What's your favorite lens? Uh, this is a bit of a techie question. You know, I have, I like to take a few photos, but, uh, you know, I don't have anywhere near the equipment, but I do usually, especially on a trip, like to a place like Millfield or somewhere like that, I would take a, my small camera and I have a few lenses. I've invested in a couple of lenses. What sort of lens are you using when you're taking you know, the shots from where you're playing? Is it a more well, wide, wide when I go, when I go and I put all my camera stuff in a backpack, like I can't check it. It's too expensive and too fragile. And so I take three lenses with me. I take a 14 to 24 F2.8. Mm-hmm. I take a 24 to 70 F2.8. And I take a 70 to 200 F2.8. And they call it the holy trinity of the Nikkor lenses. Yeah. And But the one I put on the camera to start the day is the 24 to 70 F2.8 Nikkor lens. And it, it it's the crispness, you know, that it is so crystal clear, the images it produces. And with a 47 megapixel camera, uh, you know, the combination of the D850 and that lens for most applications is just fine. And the 24 to 70 allows me, you know, technically if I'm not in the right place, I can walk backwards or walk forwards 10 or 20 yards and get a better frame or I can adjust the, the telephoto part of it. But I find the 24 to 70 is probably the, if I had to pick one and that's all I was going to do. I, I did get to spend one day with uh, Tom Mangelson taking pictures and, uh, and while he has a staff of people behind him that have the, the professional Nikon cameras that take 12 images a second and the, and the shutter release systems are made to do that. Um, and he has this 400 to 600 to 800 millimeter lenses attached to each one of them. The things are massive, but what he carries around in his hand is a Nikon D850 and he uses a 24 to 120 Nikon lens. And that one, I, you know, I actually bought, that was the first FX lens that I bought. So 24 to 120, uh, it, you know, it has a little more reach to it and it's not quite as expensive as the F2.8 lenses. Um, it's an F4, I think, throughout the entire focal length. So I would say if you were getting one, I would, I would probably say if you have an FX camera, and you can stand the two thousand dollars. You know the uh, the twenty four to seventy f two eight would be my choice. I mean, I have other lenses. I have a you know thirty five f one point four that I use taking Milky Way shots, and a hundred five millimeter f one point four that you use for portraits and things. But those are specialized lenses. But just on the golf course, it'd be one of the Trinity. You know, the fourteen to twenty four, twenty four to seventy, or seventy to two hundred. Would you ever put all of your photography works up online? You know, would you ever think about having a, a Mel Hughes website, you know, the, the travels and, and images of the great Mel Hughes? That's well, I actually pay for a, web, a website, melhughesphotography.com, but I've never built the website. Okay. And uh, it's something I pay for every year and I've never used. Yeah. Uh, it just, you know, People, other people have asked that, and I, I guess maybe one, you know, who knows? Maybe in the next few weeks, I might think this this Global Golf Centurions Club. I'm on the board of directors, and because of my aerospace background, they just assumed that I would do everything techie for the group. Yeah. I am a very technical person, but one of the things that fell into my wheelhouse was I had to build the website, 
And so we could pay somebody $10,000 to do it, you know, using HTML code, or I could go to Wix or Squarespace, you know, or someplace grow daddy and do it myself. And so being frugal with the club's money, I decided to do it myself. So now I'm a webmaster. So <laughs> I now have the skills necessary probably to build a website where I could house my, my images. But if I do all of that, that's just for somebody else. You know, I've got the external drives and a, mm. you know, a $2,700 ISO monitor that I use for image processing. I can look at them fine and I've got, a, you know, the, the world's best photo printer and, you know, it's either Canon or Epson. I, I chose the Canon Pro 1000, but the, the, the printers are not cheap, but the ink is $800 a set, Yeah, you know, so you, you know, very quickly you get into a lot of money in the printing, but I print, you know, print up the images. I've got images all over the house now. In fact, I buy frames off of Amazon and, and I've got, you know, you can buy 10 of them in a package and I've got 10 sitting behind me here at my desk and 10 over the master, the master bed and the master bedroom. And then more special ones are framed up, you know, around the house where I pay somebody, the ones from Amazon, you just put the picture in, there's no matting or anything. And they're $15 as opposed to, you know, I've got, I enjoy national park photography too. And so some of these, you know, the, the frames and the matting are six, seven, $800. And so anyway, the cheap ones, I, you know, if I get tired of that picture, I just take it out and put another one in, but I can do all of that myself. Mm. So the website would only be for someone else to look at them. And I don't have a commercial release to sell the images. Mm. And I, you know, and, and I've been warned that once you go down that road, it, it can become consuming and I have enough in my life without Fair enough. trying to, Fair to enough. sell just, pictures. So it just, it just sounds like me that there'd be a great legacy in these images and, and some stories that, uh, you know, the, the images would probably tell a lot of the stories themselves, but, uh, you know, I get it and uh, and can appreciate exactly that. And it seems like you get a great joy out of the photography and, you know, just having it there as your own little asset. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice uh, part of what you've been able to, uh, to achieve, you know, in travelling the world and experiencing some fantastic golf properties. Uh, it's unbelievable just to hear those stories and, and, the, and the destinations and corners of the world that you've covered. Now, John... Um, you know, we've been chatting for an hour and a half now, and as I said, Mel, really appreciate your time. Do you have any questions there? You know, we've both been quiet just listening here, John, but, uh, is, you know, is there any questions of your great mate Mel here that before we let him go back to uh, his cold evening in Denver and we get off to our <laughs> day at work? No, look, it's, um, yeah, many many of these stories um, I've heard before, and, and that's why... Um, that's why I, I suggested that um, that that we that we put this together so that other people could experience some of some of Mel's experiences because I think um, you know it's 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 an amazing amazing um, life well lived and stories that, um, that 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 certainly need to be uh, certainly need to be shared and I've been I've been very fortunate over the years to have um, spent time with Mel um, and. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's an important message to get out, and I'm I'm, I'm really grateful that Mel has decided to, uh, uh, to 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 share his his life experiences with us. Well, I'm humbled. Both of you are interested. Uh, I feel very fortunate in my life. I've had an opportunity to do some things that maybe not everybody has uh, had that opportunity, and. Um, and I'd ask John, are, are the stories you heard before, are they still the same? <laughs> they are. They are amazing. <laughs> they're, 
there's an old story. You may have to bleep this out, but you know that being a Navy pilot, we're always telling stories. And uh, in fact, it's one of the hallmarks of a, of a successful naval aviator is being able to tell stories. And one of one of my favorite stories is the story that says that do you know the difference between a war story and a fairy tale? Well, the war story begins with this ain't no shit. And a fairy tale begins with once upon a time, but everything after that is identical. <laughs> and so the homework assignment is to figure out how many of these stories I would tell people, you know, how many of these stories are actually true, or is it just a figment of my imagination that I'm filling in gaps of what really happened? <laughs> so I'll tell you everything I've told you today is absolutely the God's truth, but um, I, I do feel fortunate in my life. I mean, some of it is a lot of hard work and taking advantage of the opportunities you've been presented in life. And, uh, you know, in a sense I was going in the military one way or another, and I want to be an astronaut. So flying seemed the thing. And so you wind up flying fighters off an aircraft carrier and, uh, and the, you know, the, being a rocket scientist is, uh, just, uh, it's a passion to be in the space program and, and there really aren't books on how to build and develop rockets and spacecraft. You just have to learn it. And, uh, and so it's a life, you know, well spent in that area trying to help the country and, uh, and you know, push the boundaries of science and technology and golf, something I happen to be good at in a small town where there wasn't much to do. And so, uh, but it has afforded me many, many opportunities and meeting great people like John and, Ross yourself. So, uh, well, Mel, I, I sorry, I, I, really, I was going to say if people like, you know, Bob McCoy, you know, you know, first part, you know, he played, he was like second to play the world's top hundred and third to play the U S top hundred. And then he played the world's top hundred in a hundred days. Yeah, and, right. and I just interviewed him for four days in Maine where he lives, you know, and wrote a profile story on him in the, uh, kind of like a newsletter, if you will, for the Global Golf Centurions Club or or John's good friend, Paul Rudowski, who's played every course that's ever been on anyone's list of the world's top 100. I mean, there's some amazing stories out there and people I've been able to meet. And so golf has provided a spiritual release for me. I mean, you know, sit on a, you know, kick back and drink a pint of Guinness and uh, I'm not much of a drinker when you're playing 36 a day, you know, you got to get to bed cause you're getting up early. So this, you know, I don't hang out in the bars on these trips. Um, but it's, it's, I've been able to travel the world, you know, and meet a lot of fascinating people and, uh, I man, I could talk for hours about the stories of various people. I mean, from the dentist who turned out from the USC that had a French accent turned out to be president of Morfontaine in Saint-Louis, France. I mean, just, you know, you just, how, how do you back into these things? Right. You know, having to sit next to a guy on an airline flight from Denver to LA turned out, you know, it was a member at LA country club. And so, uh, my wife or ex-wife now used to say I was a tea time whore and it's probably true. You know, there's not much I wouldn't do to you know to work on a tea time and I haven't cracked the Ellerston egg, you know, but I really haven't tried that hard up to now, but uh, it's just been a wonderful opportunity to have a purpose to travel. And I use an Excel spreadsheet and I plan out the trips and I send them to Will Skadsberg in Minneapolis and he works on them and sometimes has to change the routing. So it's great fun for several months to plan it and then go over and play the courses and endure the weather and 
drink a Guinness, you know, and get up the next morning and do it again. You're soaking wet and cold and miserable. And I don't know. It's just a, it's a wonderful experience. Mel, I hope to get the experience of uh, joining you when you get back down to this part of the world. It would be an absolute honor and a privilege to just uh, cap this meeting off with uh, me hosting you down at Peninsula Kingswood and, and get your insights and, you know, bring the camera down to there because it is a beautiful little property to photograph. Um, John, thanks for jumping up early and jumping on with us and just helping with the introduction to Mel. Uh, really do appreciate that and looking forward to getting your own story out there about your top 100 journey. It's another another classic. And uh, Mel, what can I say? Uh, I was almost in, in tears there when we were talking about your experiences there with Mr Jones and just trying to put myself in the mind's eye of you know, what that must have been like. I'm sitting here looking at a picture of, you know, probably one of my favourite places in the world and golf courses in the world, which, you know, John was a part of helping me get access to, you know, the mule field, looking at the 12th hole and just having that in my mind as we've been talking. And it's been a beautiful experience just to talk to someone that's so knowledgeable, passionate and experienced in this wonderful game. It's why I love golf. It's why that anyone's listening to this loves their golf. And uh, this has been one of the greatest experiences of... Uh, of telling golf stories and i really appreciate it so thank you very much well thank you for having me it was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, an honor you know to be selected to do it uh, like i said i've been fortunate in my life and it's it's nice to share it thank you again everybody for listening and tuning in and that was the story of mel hughes and uh yeah it's been a great one and i'm just going to sit down and have a have a tea now and reflect i think that's what we sure should do okay thanks for listening